0: This is CSW's Free to Believe podcast. Christian Solidarity Worldwide stands with those facing injustice because of their religion or belief and advocates to defend, protect, and restore religious freedom worldwide. As the world tackles ever-worsening inequalities and rights violations, CSW's advocacy for the right to religious freedom is needed now more than ever. I'm Darren Edwell-Palker, a pastor and president of CSW USA. And with me today is Annalie Stengel. Annalie is the Joint Head of Advocacy at CSW. She's been at CSW since she was appointed as the European Union Liaison Officer in 1999. She spent 11 years in Brussels, coordinating CSW's advocacy on international religious freedom with the EU, and also developed CSW's research and advocacy in Latin America, establishing work in Cuba, Colombia, Mexico, and most recently Nicaragua. In 2012, she moved back to the U.S. and is now based in Washington, D.C. About five years ago, she was appointed joint head of the advocacy department. And she also continues to lead the Americas team in addition to monitoring and coordinating our U.S. government-focused advocacy. So, Annalie, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast.
1: Thank you. It's good to
0: be here. Yeah, that is a lot to go through. I would love for you to kind of unpack that with us, like what all that means and your journey and what you're doing now. So just kind of give us some context about how you connected with CSW and where that journey has taken you.
1: So it started as you mentioned in the last century in 1999 um i was just coming out of a graduate degree a postgraduate degree at at lancaster university in the uk um i had a strong interest in international politics international relations and um justice human rights issues and i i i kind of followed my interest in terms of study, but I wasn't really sure to go with that, where to go with that professionally. Um, But while I was in the UK at doing this graduate degree, I came across the SW and discovered that there was a Christian organization that worked on human rights and religious freedom specifically um, and internationally. And that that just fit exactly, without me knowing what it was, that was like my dream job there. Um, And as it worked out, as I was finishing the degree, they had a position opening up in Brussels, Um, their EU liaison officer, had just announced they were getting married moving back to the UK and so um timing worked out perfectly and I was appointed to that job. I had previously lived in France and so I spoke French um and so had some of the skill set for that position. So I moved to Brussels um, it was a one-person office at that point and so I was there on my own and had to learn about the EU on, on the spot um and and began our work just representing all the different countries we worked on with the EU institutions, with the European Parliament, uh, European Commission and Council, and trying to make sure that those issues were included in their foreign policy and dialogues with those countries. Um, But when I started at CSW, we were very small. We're still not giant, but we were really tiny back then. And everybody kind of doubled and tripled up on different things depending on what the needs were. And so when I came in, we had not very much, but we had some work in Latin America. We had no Spanish speakers on staff. And I also spoke Spanish. And so although I was hired for the EU job, I picked up the Latin America work because no one else understood the language. And so I found myself, and I I always had an interest in that region as well, but found myself picking up our work in Peru, which is what we were doing at the time. And then we had one case in Cuba um, that over time has developed into a a much larger coverage of that country. Um, And so I had, to me, kind of the best of both worlds where I was getting to do this really high level advocacy, meeting decision makers, meeting people who what they did and said made a real difference in terms of um, geopolitical uh, events. But then I also got to go onto the ground, into these countries and meet the people on whose behalf we were working face to face and talk to them and hear from them and learn from them. Um, And I think for me, both of those things were really important in kind of building up my my expertise and and the work I've been doing. So I was in Brussels for 11 years. Um, Over that time, the EU did evolve and change, um, but I got to a point where I didn't really feel personally super challenged. Um, the office at that point had grown into a multi-person office, which was fantastic. And I felt like it was a good time to to seek a new challenge and, and to let that work continue. And so I uh, discussed with our our directors about coming to DC. We'd never had a permanent office here. We'd done a lot of ad hoc work back and forth, flying over and briefing policymakers going back, but never had someone permanently here. and so. I volunteered to to make a a move back to the United States after many years away. Um, And I've been here since 2012, um, working um, in DC and still doing the Americas work. Um, Although we now have an Americas team, which is fantastic with a lot of people in the region who are part of that team doing on the ground work. Um, And as you mentioned, I was appointed joint head of advocacy a few years ago with another colleague. And so we together oversee all of the regions we work on, all of the different teams within that department. and so it's, it's a big job, but we have really great people we work with and, and for, so um, it's not it's not hard. It's, it's something I really enjoy.
0: That's awesome. I can hear your passion in it, and it's so exciting to see people that are actually living out what they love to do and making a difference. So thanks so much for what you do. Can, can you give us an overview of CSW, the work that they're doing in Latin America, kind of give us some highlights uh, kind of big picture of what's going on.
1: Sorry, I muted myself. I mentioned when I first came to, um, CSW, we had an existing, uh, project working in Peru that came out of the armed conflict, with the shining path in the eighties and nineties. It involved a lot of cases, um, where Christians and Christian communities were persecuted targeted by either really extreme, um, left-wing guerrilla groups, shining path and the MRTA, or by a very, um, oppressive government. But that kind of concluded towards around 2000, 2001, with the restoration of democracy there. Um, And although we did continue to monitor long-term cases, um, the act of work um, kind of wound up. But in the interim, um, I mentioned we went to Cuba um, and began to work there. We had one prisoner that we followed when I first came, um, but we kept hearing from Cuban leaders that we needed to go there and really see on the ground how, what the reality was in terms of religious freedom. Um, so we began to go to Cuba on a regular basis, meeting with religious leaders from across the country of all different denominations and types um, to try and understand the context in which they lived in. And as we did that, we began to document religious freedom violations. And we've maintained a log now for um, about almost 20 years of religious freedom violations. And that, that forms the basis of all of our advocacy reporting and things like that. Um, we also, in that period in the two, 2000s, got asked multiple times to go to Colombia, um, which has been experiencing armed conflict for decades um, with not just one group, but lots of different groups on all different sides. Um, and seemed very complex. But when we went there, we also learned about how church leaders specifically were being targeted by different armed actors. Um, because they were church leaders and so began to document and work with colombian religious groups there to 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 document what was happening and then to be reporting on that and then most recently um got involved in mexico which has a whole different set of problems um and then after that in the last two years nicaragua which is not as severe as cuba but following that that kind of a path Um, so it's been like our approach has just been to people ask us to come to a country and tell us we need to go and learn. Um, to, if we can't, if we have the resources to do so, we do. We go and we try to assess and listen and hear um, the reality of what's happening, and then and then see the best way to respond to that. Mm.
0: And you mentioned Nicaragua um, today, as we are recording February 9th, twenty twenty three. An important event happened, and that is that two hundred and twenty two political prisoners from Nicaragua were flown to the United States and landed just what a few hours ago as we're talking
1: we landed it about um uh, two yeah about 2 hours ago um they, this is a group of 222 political prisoners who were in some of the worst prisons in Latin America um and were removed from their cells this morning and taken to the airport and put on a plane to the United States so We have 222 new um, refugees in in the United States, Um, who thankfully are no longer in those cells. Sure, and Um, so here's
0: an example of the work that you're doing. So like, literally, what does this look like for you today, tomorrow, this week, and moving forward with this group, you know, and how would your work with CSW interact or overlap with what's happening?
1: Well, I think it it also involves looking back a little bit. And so Nicaragua has been one of these countries where similar to what I mentioned about people saying, oh, you need to come, you need to understand what's happening. it can be difficult without our data to say this is a religious freedom issue um, rather than another kind of human right or some kind of democracy issue. And so in Nicaragua, the past two years, we've been working um, with Nicaraguans in the country to try and systematically document religious freedom violations. And we train people how to recognize a religious freedom violation, how to document that. And that goes into a log and then that forms basis of our reporting. And so just about two months ago, we published for the first time an annual report on religious freedom in Nicaragua which had fantastic feedback. Um, we got invited by UN um, officers to brief them. Usually it's us asking us to brief them, but they actually contacted us and invited us to brief them. Um, US policymakers uh, asked us to submit um, information and, and brief them as well. Um, and as part of that, we were trying to monitor and put a figure on how many religious uh, leaders were among those political prisoners in Nicaragua. In, in and so that was part of reporting, um, having this list of prisoners. Um, and this morning when we learned that this flight had happened, one of the first things we did was to try and get a list of names, which wasn't immediately available, but has been since then. And to check that against the names of the prisoners we've been highlighting, whose case cases we've been highlighting. Um, and so a number of the priests that we've been highlighting, one bishop, were all on that plane. And then really um, encouraging to me, those, those priests and bishop had received quite a lot of press, Um, There was one evangelical pastor who's been in prison um, for the past year in a punishment cell, in an isolation cell, who didn't have the high profile and hasn't received the press, but he was on that plane as well. And so they're all now safe in the U.S. Um, In terms of next steps, not everyone was released. There are still people in prison in Nicaragua. Um, There was one particular bishop who was under house arrest who reportedly, and we haven't been able to confirm this yet, reportedly was on the list but refused to leave the country. Um, and so we're going to redouble our efforts to try and um, make sure that that light keeps shining on them and that the Nicaraguan government understands that whatever it does, however it treats these people, um, Will be held to
0: account for that. Well, and we were talking a moment ago, um, just before we started recording, about sort of the nuance and the different layers to this. Because um, you know, somebody like me just hearing about it for the first time. In fact, I've got a, I'm heading down to Nicaragua next week. Um, but just hearing about it, it's like, yeah, that's awesome. 222 political prisoners released. That's great. They're in the U.S. But you kind of added some layers to it that I think might be helpful just for people to understand the complexity of what's happening.
1: I think on a personal level, um, it is right to to give praise and thanks. It is it is great that a person who yesterday was in a punishment isolation cell is now in a free country and is gonna be looked after and resettled without having to be afraid that what they say could throw them back in prison. That on a personal level is wonderful. Um, looking at a bigger picture and, and kind of the political realities, a lot of oppressive governments do things like this just so they can get rid of critical voices. Um, Nicaraguan government today successfully rid itself of 222 people who um, if not were not openly critical had at least independent thoughts and independent ways of thinking and those people are no longer in the country and no longer a problem for the government and now the Nicaraguan government can say they have many fewer um, political prisoners than they had before so that on paper looks like an improvement so it in a way it is a a, it's something that also works for the Nicaraguan government um the, the reality is, um, and is in my experience with people who've been forced into exile or have had to flee, um, many of them, most of them, when they do, they intend and they want to keep working on the issues in their country. Um, but especially after an experience like what these people have been through, they arrive having gone through a kind of unimaginable emotional, psychological, um, painful journey, um, and they need time to recover from that and recuperate from that. Um, But as a refugee, they're also in a new country, have to learn a new language, have to make a living here. There's a lot um, of practical
0: realities to making life work in a new country.
1: And someone who's trying to recover from a really severe emotional or psychological and physical trauma, but also has to clean houses to make ends meet or do construction work um, and learn English doesn't have a lot of time to dedicate to doing activism. And so again, it, it works for the gov- Nicaraguan government and that they get rid of these voices and they kind of neutralize them. That said, um, again, I'm going to go back to the on the personal level. It's wonderful. This mm-hmm. is something we should celebrate that these people who are prisoners are now free. Um, and, and that's a, a wonderful thing.
0: And we'll talk about advocacy and the impact of advocacy. And, and again, it is layered, um, but there is pressure that governments receive when other nations are speaking out and saying, hey, this is not right. You can't hold people in prison indefinitely as a result of their political or their religious views. And so on one level, again, celebrating that where we're also cognizant of the complexity and the layers, the challenges that those people face and um, hope and pray that we'll continue to be able to get information out in ways that people can, can actually help. Um, especially now that people are here in the U S can you help us understand. So we talked about sort of a Cuba armed conflicts that are happening in countries, just um, Catholic Protestant issues, um, indigenous communities that are experiencing persecution in places like Mexico. Can you give us a couple of stories or examples kind of on that personal level so that we can understand what this actually looks like as a lived experience? Again, it's easy to get lost in sort of the big picture, and here's what's happening, but when it comes to how it impacts real people's lives, help us to understand that.
1: Um, Sure, I can start with Cuba. Um, We've been running a a campaign for the past year and a half on a man named Pastor Lorenzo Rosales. Um, He was arrested um, during a nationwide protest that took place in Cuba on July 11th, 2021. Um, The protests were not religious, um, but were spontaneous and people coming out into the streets and calling peacefully for change. Um, He was one of those people, and he was detained. um, There's photographic evidence of him being held in a chokehold by a paramilitary um, soldier. Um, And then he was thrown into a maximum security prison where he spent the last year and a half. He recently was moved to a minimum security um, facility on Christmas Eve. So that's a progress, although he's still not free. But his story is interesting because although if you looked at it on the surface, you would think, well, this is somebody who happened to be a religious leader, but... And got was really targeted though because he was involved in these protests um but in fact if you look at this man's longer story you discover that he was the leader of an independent unregistered church in cuba of which there are many as the government it makes it very difficult if not impossible for new new churches to to register and receive legal status so he was um a leader of a an independent church in the east of the country um for the past 11 years Um, He had previous issues with the government. At one point, the government confiscated, um, evicted them from their home and confiscated their home, which was also acting as their church. Um, And interestingly, the state security agent, which is Cuba's internal um, intelligence apparatus, kind of similar to the Stasi in eastern Germany. um, The state security agent, who was directly involved in that event where the house was confiscated, where he was threatened 11, 12 years ago, um, now is in a much higher position and was the person responsible for saying that when he was arrested, this person's going to mass security prison. And so you see this line wow. that this person is not just being targeted because they happen to be on the street mm. and happen to be caught in protest. But there's been a long um, campaign targeting them um, while in prison. He was uh, tortured. Um, he was beaten very badly um, at a report firsthand report from someone who was present of um, guards urinating on his face as they beat him up. And. Um, subjected to humiliating um, treatment, uh, was blocked visitation um, from his wife and children on various occasions, was punished because he continued to share his faith in the prison um, and he kept doing it anyway. Um, his, his wife received letters from other prisoners, um, not political prisoners, but people who had been convicted of criminal offenses, writing to her to say that they knew it was hard for her and her family, but how much they appreciated him in the prison because he changed their lives. Wow um so yeah very interesting to see how people adapt and 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 react in these kinds of situations but um but I think a really good example of somebody who who has not directly confronted the government um by leading a a religious organization that's not you know political um but the Cuban government views it as such anything independent is political and so that that targeting of him He was given a seven year sentence. Um, He's now served a year and a half of that. We're hopeful that with the move to minimum security prison, that that might presage some kind of more loosening. Um, But really what's needed in Cuba is full scale change. So these kinds of things don't happen again. Cause even if he's free, still be at risk of
0: And on that specific case, we'll we'll get here but in terms of advocacy that's a specific way that people can get involved and make their voices heard so can you help us understand you know when people go to the website cswusa.org they'll see a link to um, understand about pastor lorenzo's case can you just kind of help us understand what some of the ways that people can actually allow their voices to be heard on this issue
1: over the past two decades working on religious freedom in cuba um, and this doesn't apply to every country, but definitely the case of Cuba, the government is very sensitive to its international image. Um, it invests a lot of resources and effort into portraying an image that all is well in Cuba, mm-hmm. that it's a great place for tourism, that everybody's happy. Um, and so a way of uh, uh, one of the most effective ways of of getting to them is by showing the true reality mm-hmm. Um and so we asked people, for example, to we've asked left, we've tried to sign a petition um, that was delivered to the Cuban government, out calling for his release, and just keeping that light on him, um, so that the Cuban government understands that this is not someone who is unknown. This is not some anonymous person they can do whatever they want to, but whatever they do to him will be noticed, will be reported on, will be responded to. Um, his wife has, has been threatened multiple times to, to told to stop talking to us and stop talking to national organizations. Um, but she also noticed that that's what they're sensitive to. So she's not stopped doing that. Um, so I think just keeping a light on it, writing, signing petitions, when we have those type of things, we had a protest in front of the Cuban embassy in London, which made the Cuban embassy very angry. Uh, they they actually tore up a poster of Pastor Lorenzo and pushed it back out through the mailbox. Um, very petty, but we, it made us know that we were being effective. So that was, that was funny. Um, but then something, it may not seem like advocacy, but something very simple that we ask people to do is send a letter of encouragement to people like Pastor Lorenzo and his family. Um, it can be a postcard, it can be a, a Christmas card, but just you know, a few words on a, on a letter um, sent to him, to his family, either to him in prison or to his family at their address um, saying, we're praying for you, we care about you. And that has an effect, not just in encouraging the person who receives it, but because everything is so tightly controlled in Cuba, they know exactly what letters you're going to wear. And in many cases, they're read before they're delivered. And so we we ask people to write these letters to the family, knowing that it's very likely the Cuban government will read it and be watching. And again, it sends a message to this person is somebody who has friends, who has a network, who people care about. And again, they can't do just anything because it will not go unperceived.
0: And so for people that are interested in doing that, again, at the website, there's a tab, get involved. And then down a little bit later, there's a connect and encourage button, press that. And it just walks you through how to do it just step by step. It'll take you to how to actually write a letter to somebody, um, to, to encourage them. And that's a direct way that people can get involved to allow their voices to be heard, to express solidarity with those who are suffering. Suffering. And, um, so yeah, that's, that's great. So we got, that's
1: updated sorry that's updated three times three or four times a year so it's people can be assured that what's in there is is up to date and we also do give guidelines for certain countries on if there's something you shouldn't say specifically or something that is a little bit dangerous um it's not yeah we try and help people as much as possible to understand kind of the, the best way to do this
0: and you mentioned there's a story that you had that was connected with that with people writing letters um can can you share that with us
1: yeah it's one of my favorite stories of my time at csw um this is many years ago now, but we had another another pastor who was imprisoned in Cuba, um, and he was in a maximum security, a notorious maximum security prison in Havana. Um, he had been treated very badly. He wasn't a pastor that we had known before he was in prison, so he didn't really know about CSW or what we do. Um, but when we learned that he'd been imprisoned, we had him to connect and encourage. We had people writing letters um, to him and to his family, um, many of which were going to the prison. And he said, well, he was in prison. There was a particular guard who really singled him out for abuse and just made his life daily life awful um and he you know prayed that god would remove this guy and the guy just kept coming back and this guard just just kept at him and then one day the guard disappeared he wasn't there and this pastor kind of took a deep breath and enjoyed a couple of days of like of, of peace from this this man but he was wondering what had happened to him because he just all of a sudden he wasn't around and he said a few days later, um, one of the superiors in the prison approached him and said, Um, Pastor Lemelas, uh need to ask you to do something. And Pastor said, Well, okay, I'm a limited <laughs> from the prison. Um, but and what do you need? And they said, We need you to tell all these people who are writing to you to stop. Um, and he said, Well, I don't know them. <laughs> I can't. I don't, I don't I don't know where these letters are coming from. I'm, I appreciate them. They're people, my brothers and sisters in Christ, but I don't know them personally, and I have no way of communicating to them to stop. And the guy was upset, the superior, and the pastor said, you know, just out of curiosity, why? Like, what's the issue? Um, and the superior said, well, every single document that comes into this prison has to be translated to know what it says. And there's only one guard on staff who speaks fluent English, I and mean, he's now spending... 10 hours a day sitting at a desk <laughs> translating all these cards and letters were coming and pastor Lamella said was it, is it by any chance this particular guard?" and he said yes it is how'd you know and he said well he laughed he's like i just god has a great sense of humor um and i hope that through this process of translating wow. many bible verses this guard will uh, have his own uh understanding of, of god's love um but it was it was a very satisfying satisfying way of how God worked in that in that situation. And he was he was released a few months later.
0: Wow, that's um, amazing just to see the way that again, something as simple as writing a letter, sending it, actually has an impact on real people and not just the people that get it, but the number of channels that it has to go through to get it there. That each of them are seeing that. So I, I love that and I do appreciate God's sense of humor in that way. But that's so cool. That and again, real practical way on the website, get involved um, the right and encourage, um, that's really great. So, uh, any other particular examples we got pastor Lorenzo? Um, yeah.
1: so you mentioned Mexico, mm-hmm. um, and Mexico is a, an interesting country cause it's not something I think a lot of us think about when we think of religious freedom issues. Um, for the, for us in the U S it's our neighbor next door. It's, um, we know of it as a very Catholic country, um, uh, culturally very religious, um, And yet there are a lot of very serious religious freedom issues that are happening there. Um, Mexico has a very strict separation of church and state. It's modeled on the the secularism of France. Um, And yet it has a very deeply religious population. So there's kind of this tension already between how the government approaches religion and how the population um, experiences it. Mexico also has a very large indigenous population, especially concentrated in some parts of the country. Um, And there is a legal framework for those indigenous communities to maintain and protect their traditional ways of governing and their culture. Um, In writing, that says that that has to be implemented in accordance with human rights guarantees in the constitution and Mexico's international obligations. But in practice, the government does very little to ensure that that's how it's implemented. Um, In Mexico, in many of these communities, The majority religion this is on a very local level the majority religion is roman catholicism um often it's a very syncretistic form of it but it is recognized as catholicism um and the 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 cultural beliefs of these communities has historically been that everybody has to participate Mm. and if anybody doesn't that causes rupture in the community that can bring all kinds of awful um uh, effects and so when and if somebody converts away from the majority religion um, to no faith or to another faith, whether that's Protestantism or, um, or something else, uh, that by in the eyes of the majority is causing a rupture and causing a problem. And uh, they then often take um, punitive actions against that person or people, um, which can start with things like cutting off electricity and water, mm-hmm. um, prohibiting their children from going to the local school, uh, at barring them from working their their own lands and crops um, and then in many cases that escalates to violence um, to forced displacement so one of the primary reasons behind behind forced displacement in mexico is religious intolerance um these cases because the government is slow to or fails to completely intervene and ensure that religious freedom and human rights are upheld for everybody often go on for years um, and sometimes they kind of stagnate for years and sometimes they go on for years and then suddenly escalate and so we had a case Just over um, Christmas, and right before Christmas, of a woman in a community which has been experiencing problems since 2015. Um, We've been documenting ongoing issues there where a Catholic majority told the Protestant minority that they needed to participate in all the Catholic rituals and festivities, um, and then also uh, could not practice their own faith, um, had cut electricity, cut their water. Their kids had not been able to go to school for the past few years. Um, And just before Christmas, one of the women in the minority community, one of the Protestant women, was called by a neighbor to come cut down some trees that they were worried were going to fall on the property. And we don't know if it was a setup. We don't know what what the rationale was, but she went to respond to this call. um, And she was attacked by the the men leaders in the village. Um, And she was tied to a tree. She was beaten very brutally. Um, She suffers from diabetes. And um, she experienced. She, she was able to, after being beaten, she was able to go and make a complaint at the um, with the authorities, but subsequently became very, very ill and began to vomit blood. Um, and she had an attack of diabetes ketoacidosis. I'm probably saying that wrong, um, but it's a very severe uh, condition that can be provoked by uh, with someone who has diabetes, but can be provoked by physical or emotional trauma. Um, she was Went into intensive care, ICU, the hospital. She was there for about two or three weeks. Um, The doctors didn't think she was going to survive um, and they were already discussing kind of arrangements for funerals and things but miraculously she did recover uh, eventually and um, she was able to leave the hospital um, for she was at a a safe place for a while. She's now back in the community um, recuperating Um, but interestingly the the government there's video. There's evidence that this happened. Um, there's medical reports, but nobody was arrested. Nobody was held to account. Nobody was asked to answer for a what we would consider um, grievously, grievous bodily harm, um, physical physical assault, uh, and that's pretty typical with these cases. Unfortunately, the, the Mexican government, going back to the separation of church and state, their approach often is, well, we have a secular state here, separation of church and state, so we can't get involved because this is a religious issue even though a crime was committed. Um, and so in that case, uh, we've been campaigning, we've been acting. That particular community, all this has been going on for about eight years now, has been very reluctant to go public because they were afraid that would make yeah. it get, get even worse. Um, but after this last assault, they said we have to go public now because this is about as, it, it can get worse, but it's now as bad as it, as it thought it might get. So trying to do advocacy, we, we briefed the State Department, um, they became involved. Um, We had a lot of um, people in Mexico um, contacting us to see what they could do. Uh, Wonderfully, the Baptist World Alliance got involved, and they put the the, the communities, of the Parsons are Baptists. They put the Baptist Convention in Mexico City in touch with the community, and so there's now a relationship there. Um, But again, trying to, we want to continue to shine a light on to make sure the Mexican government knows it's not going to go away. They have to do something. Um, When a crime is committed, even if the motivation is religious, it's still a crime and it needs to be treated as such. So in that case, um, in, for, in terms of advocacy, we have asked people to write letters to the Mexican embassy to express concern about what's happened um, and to call for action.
0: And Impulso 18, uh, Impulse 18 began a few years ago, two, three years ago. It's uh, CSW's organization in, in Mexico. Yeah, And so, so- yeah,
1: Impulso 18 is, is basically the name, our legal name in Latin America. Mm-hmm. Um, the CSW didn't work in terms of translation very well. Um, and so they decided on Pulse 18, which is based on Article 18 of the UN Declaration of Human Rights, which is what protects religious freedom. Um, and they are on the ground. They've been working with the community, documenting um, cases. On a more positive note, um, I just was talking to our director there this, this afternoon, and he told me that one of the states where we have the highest incident of this type of, of uh, violation, the governor's actually asked him to come and train local authorities on wow. religious freedom. Um, and to go from wow. what, what, we kind of, what we would look at county to county, um, bring the, the local leaders together and train them on, to understand what religious freedom is and what it's not. Um, that, that would be a, that's a huge step forward, I think, and a, a real opportunity to... a lot of this is ignorance. People don't understand or they have a misconception of sure. religious freedom. Is, but it was an opportunity there to, to teach and educate and hopefully um,
0: move forward on that. That's amazing. So that, I mean, just to highlight that, you heard that news today and that CSW as Impulso 18, Impulse 18 in Mexico is working and is being given open doors to train and equip and educate people there. I mean, that's, that is so awesome. That's so cool. That's what this is about.
1: Very exciting. It's interesting too, because in the past, we've been asked to go train the people who were experiencing the violations, mm. which is okay, but they already know they're experiencing violations. Right. So to be asked to go train the people who are responsible for the preventative, and to kind of help them understand what their obligations are, not just their rights but what their obligations as leaders are, I think is a a really big opportunity.
0: That's amazing. So cool. So we've talked already about just a number of ways that people can get involved, letters, uh, advocacy, support of CSW so that CSW can do this work in a very kind of specified and focused way. Um, and of course, prayer and and never, ever want to minimize the importance and the power of prayer. And there's so much information on the website that actually help can guide, can direct our praying uh, specifically. But you want to say a word about that and how people can pray. And then, and then in just a minute here, you can lead us in, in a prayer for our work in Latin America.
1: Sure. As I mentioned earlier, we are chatting again and again, when I've gone out into these countries where I've met with um, people who've been directly impacted by the violations, in some cases, awful, you know, a pastor who was murdered in front of his wife and children. Mm-hmm. And I've talked to these people and again and again, and, and I know for us as humans, it's kind of mysterious to understand how prayer works, but again and again, I hear from them that they knew people were praying for them. They felt that at a specific moment or a specific place. Um, and so I just want to encourage people who are listening that that prayer does, you may never see it. You may never understand what you've done but it does go somewhere and it does have an impact and mm-hmm. so it's, it's really important i think to to keep doing that praying for these people praying for their encouragement for wisdom um mm-hmm. and for for freedom for many of them um you also asked me earlier what my what verse informs my work um and i went back to it's a very short simple one from psalm 20 um that some men trust in chariots and horses but we call on the name of the lord our god mm-hmm. And that I think of again and again in my work because we come up against these governments that seem so intransigent, that yeah. seem to have so much power, mm. so many resources at their disposal. I think of like Myanmar, I think of China, um, Cuba, Nicaragua. Um, and, you know, here I am with my computer and my <laughs> WhatsApp on my phone trying to like get information out. Um, and it can seem like the power balance is completely against us, but we have to remember that they may have what appear to be the effective weapons, mm. but we have the name of the Lord our God. Um, that is who is behind us and who fights with us and leads this work. And, and that always gives me, um, not just uh, motivation, but, but inspiration and, um, and the ability to, to keep going, um, that'd be a very, very depressing, um, hopeless line of work.
0: Yeah. Wow. And the fact that the scriptures from beginning to end show us that God is on the side of the oppressed of those that are suffering and he is at work, and he works through people, right? And so our prayer in these podcasts is that people would catch a vision, they would be moved for a particular region, a particular country, a particular case, and begin to make that a point of prayer. I was uh, talking with Benedict Rogers from uh, CSW's Advocacy in Asia, and we were talking about finding your burden, finding your passion. It's impossible for any of us to have a burden and a passion for every issue, but when, but we need to have something. We need to have a place where our passion is directed and where we care and are concerned and are educated and are praying and are um, advocating for. And so that's part of my hope and goal in these podcasts is that people would start to ask themselves, like, God, where, where, what is it that moves me? What is it that I can connect with the compassionate heart of God that can actually move me into action to taking steps, and that, I believe, is God sharing his heart with us. If he shared his heart uh, of compassion for all the suffering in the world at once, it would crush us. We wouldn't be able to stand, but he gives it to us, and I think to me that's a gift of participating, as Paul would say, in the sufferings of Christ, participating in... Um, in in the very real work of standing with those that are facing persecution as a result of their religion or belief. And um, so Annalie, would you lead us in a prayer? just kind of model what it looks like to pray and maybe even how you pray, what your prayer looks like and so that we can join you and and kind of hear that and echo that with you but, Again, just thank you for for your work, for your advocacy, for the way that you've allowed your life to be used as an instrument um, in these very difficult situations.
1: Thank you for having me. Go ahead and pray. Um, Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much um, for this opportunity um, to come together and to talk about these different things. And we thank you especially for just the events of today. We thank you that today 222 men and women were set free from prison um, and are now in a a place of freedom. And we thank you for breakthroughs in Mexico, um, for hope in in Cuba, um, the moving of Pastor Lorenzo from maximum security to minimum security prison. Um, We thank you for the open doors in in states like Guerrero in Mexico where they want training to understand better about how to approach religious freedom. We just thank you for reminding us that you are moving Lord, that although the world sometimes seems to be going down in flames, that there are reasons for hope, there are things happening, um, sometimes obvious, sometimes not so obvious, um, and trust, Lord, that you are always at work and always moving and doing this. Lord, we thank you for giving us these burdens. We thank you for putting on our hearts um, people and places and situations to care about and to want to do something. And we just ask, Lord, that as you give us these burdens, Lord, as you give us these passions and interests, that you would also give us the tools um, and the understanding to know what we can do, so we wouldn't become um, paralyzed by by the overwhelmingness of everything, um, that we would, again, just have, even if it's something that seems small, the ability to do something and to make that little, um, that little step or that little mark. And we thank you, Lord, that no matter what the burden, how heavy it seems Lord, or how hopeless it seems, that that burden is so much more to you you carry that um, you weep with us and you weep with those who are weeping Um, and when we cannot stand alongside a widow in colombia or a a child of a political prisoner in cuba um, you stand alongside them weep with them and you with them and although we are maybe far away physically or we have that um, mysterious power of prayer that brings us close spiritually and so we ask as well that you would inspire us and move us in our prayers to to be constant, Lord, as Paul has called us to be, um, constantly praying, cont- constantly interceding and, and trusting that our prayers um, make a difference and, and go somewhere and do something. So we thank you again um, for reminding us that you are sovereign, Lord, that all of this is temporary. Mm. Uh, no matter how awful it seems, no matter how huge it seems, no matter how powerful it seems, it is nothing to you. Um, you are eternal, Lord. You are good, our light and you our love and all of that has overcome the darkness and so we pray in faith in that lord and we pray in courage in that and we pray in confidence in that and we look to you for the answers um for ourselves lord and for all of these people in situations around the world who need you so badly jesus name
0: Amen. Annalie, thank you. Thanks for being you. Thanks for allowing just your gifts, your abilities to speak on behalf of others. And you're an inspiration to me. And I hope everyone listening also catches that passion and determines that they're going to take a next step as well. If if so, then this will have been worth it to inspire people to just take that next step. And uh, so thanks so much for being here. Thanks for the work that you do. And we look forward to continuing the conversation.
1: Thank you. I feel enormously privileged and blessed to be able to do it. So I'm happy to be able
0: to share. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. We invite you to stand with us on behalf of those facing injustice because of their religion or belief. Go to our website, cswusa.org. Learn how you can make a difference for those suffering for their faith. Your voice matters. Use it.